You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So in the Advent season, we began walking through the gospel according to Luke in order to marvel at the beauty of God's revelation through scripture, specifically as his son, Jesus Christ, is revealed to us. And, And up to this point, one major theme that we've seen in Luke's gospel is that Luke is concerned with showing that Jesus is the key in God's story coming to a climax. He's the key in the history of redemption. And so I mentioned in the very first sermon in the Advent series, as we started looking at Luke, that the first two verses of Luke's gospel are are kind of the key to understanding the whole gospel. We we can't understand what Luke's doing without them, and so I'm going to read those for us. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So Luke says he's writing about things that have been accomplished among us. He is concerned about these things that have been accomplished. And so we should constantly be expecting in Luke's gospel a theme of fulfillment surrounding Jesus' life. That in Jesus' life and the things surrounding his life, that things are being fulfilled, that the the things that have been echoed in the Old Testament scriptures are now coming to pass in fulfillment in Jesus. And so Israel's history has been foreshadowing this time in history when Jesus would be living and walking among men. And so through the first three chapters of Luke's gospel, we've seen countless allusions to the Old Testament scriptures. John the Baptist has been shown to be the final Old Covenant prophet And he's been preparing the way for the promised Messiah or Savior for Israel. And last week specifically, we saw Jesus being baptized and proclaimed to be the blessed Son of God. A better Son even than God's first man, Adam. And so that's a theme that we'll be seeing a lot more in Luke chapter 4. is Jesus being linked to God's first man, the the first Adam. Jesus is going to be presented throughout Luke's gospel as the second Adam. And so for us to understand what's happening in Luke chapter 4, we need to understand the nature of Adam. The first Adam, at the very beginning of the Bible, let's consider the narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And over the course of six days, God created all that is in the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth, and his final and most glorious creation was humanity. He intimately created this man, Adam, the first human, by molding him with clay and breathing life into his body with his very breath. And he placed this man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, and he gave him a noble task— to be the chief gardener, to be the groundskeeper, to be the developer of God's garden. And he was with his helper and wife Eve to do this, 
to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in this mandate, God established the purpose for his people in the world. The purpose of God's people in the world is to multiply and to work the ground and to push the borders of this blessed garden outward until the entire earth becomes a garden of order and beauty and peace and rest and God's presence. And Adam, like we've said, is not alone in this task. God gave him a wife a helper equal to him in dignity and greater to him in glory. And she was to help him in this work of multiplication and cultivation and annexation. And if that's not enough, God gave to Adam every plant that yielded seed, all the trees that bear fruit to eat. And so Adam is in the garden, full of the breath of God, in the presence and rest of God, with the blessing and approval and help of God, With only one restriction, to resist eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But before Adam and his wife Eve have done any work in multiplying, before they had borne any fruit in their labors, the Garden of Eden was met with an invasive species in the form of a talking snake who was himself God's great enemy, the devil. And this snake was crafty, as any snake who might speak the languages of men would be expected to be. And he had a plan, and his plan was to make the word of God seem foolish and restricting to the blessed humans. He would cause them to question God's commandments, and he would even seek to convince them that God himself was a liar. But why would the devil care whether or not Adam and Eve obeyed God? Well, if they obeyed the desires of God, the devil's chief enemy and and his ruler, what would come to pass? Eventually, these humans who reeked of God's glory and image would be countless in number, and the wilderness outside of Eden would become well-groomed and restful. Eventually, all of God's glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and as scales covered his body. And so this snake, full of intellect and full of hatred, got to work deceiving the first man and the first woman. See, God told them that eating from the tree would kill them. But the snake told them that it wouldn't. He went further still. The forbidden fruit of the tree, he said, would make them like God, knowing good from evil. And our first parents believed the snake. And though they did learn the difference between good and evil, they learned it in the form of realizing that they themselves had become evil in their disobedience. They didn't believe God And they were drawn to the one thing that they couldn't have. And so this fruit of the forbidden tree seemed sweet enough to them that they might risk it all. And eventually, just like God promised them, they died. And so did all of their sons and daughters after them. They multiplied, but the world of sin 
subdued and had dominion over them and their progeny rather than the hopeful prospect of it being the other way around. And since that conversation with the devil in the Garden of Eden, all humans have become genetically predisposed to be like our first parents. We disbelieve God's word. We give in to the temptations presented to us in order to have immediate gratification, and in the process, we abandon the long-suffering nature of working to make this wild earth into a peaceful garden. And so now let's go back to Luke chapter 4. And for those of you who didn't have it in your notes, we'll be in verses 1 through 13. Like Adam, Jesus was the son in whom God was well-pleased. We learned that last week in the baptism account. We also learned that while our genealogy goes back to Adam, Jesus' genealogy goes past Adam and back to God. And so chapter 3 of Luke, preceding the text today, is meant to echo chapter 1 of Genesis. The theme is being developed that Jesus is a new Adam, a new representative of a new humanity, who is to establish a new creation. And if we weren't convinced in chapter 3, we should be as we read verse 1 of chapter 4. It says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. This could be easily translated from the Greek as, And Jesus, full of the breath of God. Jesus is like Adam. He's begotten of the Father, and he's full of God's breath. And he has been commissioned with a version of Adam's original mandate, which is to see that the whole earth is full of a multiplied people of God, such that God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. But if we went to Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin against God, we'll realize that the work of gardening and Making the wilderness into a garden is much more difficult now that sin and death have entered the world. And so Jesus' placement is not like Adam's in a peaceful garden. It's a wilderness marred by sin. And so it's only appropriate at this point in Jesus' story in the Gospel of Luke that he is not taken into a garden, but that he is led by the Spirit of God into a wilderness to be tempted like Adam. The text reads, beginning in verse 1, Jesus, full of the breath of God, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So here we have Jesus in the wilderness, fasting and praying, having had no food or water for 40 days. So if we went back to Genesis, we would know that Adam in the garden ended up with a belly full of fresh fruit. But Jesus is here in the wilderness with cracked lips and a growling stomach, a swollen tongue with thirst. But he does have the presence of God like Adam. He has God's spirit. He knows God's word and he understands fully the task set before him. And unsurprisingly, Jesus encounters here in the wilderness the same tempter who foiled the first Adam. 
once again, God's man, God's representative, is spoken to by God's great enemy. In verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Are you as unsurprised as I am that the first temptation for the new Adam is related to food? After all, the first Adam ate the forbidden fruit, so why wouldn't the enemy assume that the second Adam would as well? After all, he's far more hungry than the first Adam was. He has the power to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. I mean, after all, soon we will see Jesus multiplying fish and loaves. So turning a stone into a loaf of bread is no problem for him. And what could be so bad about a man who's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights turning a stone into sustenance? But let's see how Jesus responds. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, the law of God, in a text that reads in full, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is working from the law of Moses, and and he is not only in the wilderness to relive and perfect the story of the first Adam, but he's also in the wilderness to relive and perfect the story of Moses and the people of Israel following the Exodus. After all, they were given freedom from slavery in Egypt and left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, a time of testing and temptation. And the people of Israel in the wilderness were hungry and God provided food for them in the form of bread from heaven. They were thirsty and God provided for them water from a rock. But still the people of Israel grumbled and sinned. Moses gave to them a covenant that God made with them, and they still sinned against God. And so the people of Israel's time in the wilderness was one of failure, sin, and weakness when met with trial and temptation. After all, the Israelites were the offspring of the first Adam. Even so, Jesus is hungrier than they were. He's thirstier than they were. But he is satisfied in the presence of God. He is filled by the word of God. He is, in fact, the bread of life. He is the spiritual rock that provides living water. He certainly doesn't need to turn a stone in the wilderness, which has been cursed by God, into his food. He would be eating of Adam's sinful byproduct. And since the failure in the garden has led to the reality that the garden of God hasn't pushed back the wilderness of the serpent. The earth has now become the possession of the serpent, of the tempter, of the devil. In the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians. He's called the ruler of this world all throughout John's gospel. In Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air. So he has a serious amount of authority and jurisdiction over the world and their kingdoms. So that stone that he's offering to Jesus to turn into bread is his stone, and he wants the Son of God to become indebted to him. Alistair Roberts, a theologian, writes, The devil wants Jesus to produce bread from his curse-bearing territory. 
rather than relying by faith upon God's bread. The wilderness has become a source of a feast in in accounts in Ezekiel and in Revelation. But this only happens after the great victory has been won. And so Jesus knows that there will come a time when God and his people feast in the wilderness as it becomes a place of victory. But he knows that that time has not yet come. It will be a feast upon the victory over sin and the wicked enemies of God's gospel, not upon stones. But that time has not yet come. For the the Lord, there are better stones to eat in God's word. There's more satisfying bread, and Jesus knows that there's patience needed. He knew the end, and he knew that this moment in the wilderness was not the end. He chooses rather to be satisfied in the Spirit and in the presence of God. He chooses to feast upon God's Word. He chooses to stay the course of the mission that His Father gave to Him rather than giving in to something easier and faster and less painful. But the enemy doesn't leave God's Son when he refuses to eat a stone. He goes on. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to them, he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. So the devil now is making an even more compelling offer to Jesus. He seems to know That Jesus' mission is to establish God's glory such that all the kingdoms of the earth are one day worshiping the Lord and that they understand Jesus to be king. The devil knows that Jesus could be the one who actually does the work of making the earth into a peaceful garden of God. Of God's reign and rule and grace. And he hates the thought of it. If the world gives glory to God then he will stop receiving glory. If the world starts turning to God in obedience, then they will stop serving him in disobedience. And so he tempts Jesus with the possibility of accomplishing his mission without any of the hard work of suffering, working, sweating, and cultivating. I know that you're here to have the kingdoms, and you can have them right now. All you have to do is commit cosmic treason. All you have to do is reject your divine sonship. The nations are up for grabs, and Jesus can have them right now. He won't have to be rejected. He won't have to suffer and die. He won't need to be mocked. But this is how Jesus responds. He says, it is written You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Satan thinks that what Jesus most desires is probably the kingdoms of the world, but what we see is that what Jesus most desires is to serve his Father, the Lord. And so in this response, he quotes kind of the ultimate commandment from God to the people of God. But Israel was prone to disobeying it. They were prone to to craft for themselves gods, to lust after. They'd build a golden calf for the assembly. 
They'd have a handheld trinket in the privacy of their tent. And the people of Israel were known to see the appeal of these pagan gods who allowed for any sort of behavior when the universe, when the God of the universe was maybe too slow to deliver his promises or when his commandments were too difficult to uphold. But Jesus, in his obedience, redeems the idolatry of Israel. He isn't offered the pleasure of pagans, but he's offered the worship of pagans. Yet to have it, he would have to worship the ultimate pagan god himself in the devil. And he refuses. Just like last week, he repents and is baptized on behalf of Israel. So this week, he worships and obeys on behalf of Israel in the wilderness of their failure. Jesus rejects immediate gratification for the sake of the Genesis 1 mandate to be fruitful and multiply so that God's glory might flourish. And in this, he relives and perfects Israel's history. And now he's foiled the tempter a second time. So now that Satan has failed to convince Jesus to eat the cursed food of the wilderness and he's failed to sway the Christ into worshiping him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the earth, he goes to plan C, which will take place atop the temple, the dwelling place of God, a heavenly embassy in the midst of a sinful wilderness. It says, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And this may seem an odd thing for the devil to tempt Jesus to do. But he isn't simply tempting Jesus to perform a little trick by having angels swoop down and save him. And he's not tempting him into a little game of heavenly base jumping. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus is deeply concerned with the goings-on of the temple. He'll go there to turn over tables. He'll call it a den of robbers. And he'll even say that the religious leaders in the temple are not sons of Abraham or of his father, but they are rather sons of the devil. So what we see happening here is the devil telling Jesus, if you want to be stubborn, that's fine. If you're going to allow me to own the kingdoms, just know that eventually this temple, your father's house, will be mine. You might as well submit yourself now to exile. You might as well... Resist your father's presence and run away. Because eventually I'm going to have this. Make it easier on yourself and just run. Go into a peaceful exile because if you run, I won't have to embarrass you. I won't have to defeat you. This makes me think of that dreadful scene in Disney's The Lion King after Mufasa dies and Scar comes up to a a sad and terrified Simba and tells him that his father's kingdom is no longer his father's. And then what does he say? He says, run, Simba. Run away and never return. Mufasa is dead and Scar tells Simba, to enter into a peaceful exile. The devil is tempting Jesus to run away. 
Never return. Cast yourself away from your father's presence because he's going to be so disappointed when I take the temple on your watch. But Jesus answered him and he said, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the climax of the temptation narrative. Jesus is the truer and better Simba, if you will. He does not coil in fear and run. He looks the devil in the eye and tells him something that surely put a fearful chill down the spine of the spineless one. He says, don't test me. You've asked for the wrong thing. He reminds the devil of his place in the pecking order of the universe. He may be powerful, he may be rebellious, he may be persuasive, but the Lord is still God over him. Satan wanted Jesus to be exiled, and that was a foolish thing to ask for. Because Jesus' exile is coming. But in his exile, on the cross, he will not lose the kingdoms of the world, but he will gain them. He will establish a better temple than the building that they're perched upon. The serpentine tempter wanted Jesus to be removed from the presence of God, cast away from the temple, but Jesus will be removed from the presence of the Father soon enough. On the cross, as he atones for the sins of a foolish people, a rebellious people, Redeeming them, the chosen heritage of God from the enemy's kingdom. The exile that's been requested will not be the tempter's victory, but it will be his defeat. It will come in the form of Jesus' arrest, rejection, mocking, and eventual death. And in his exile, the thorns that Genesis 3 promised would work against Adam and his offspring will become his crown of glory. But his exile will not be the end of the story. He will raise victoriously over Satan's greatest asset, the power of death. And eventually, he will return like Simba to cast the devil out. Satan will one day be consumed by fire. Without a kingdom, without glory, and without question, he will be vanquished. The last taste in the mouth of the liar will be the fruit of his lies, death and wrath. And in that day, he will never tempt again. In that day, death will no longer win. In that day, all the kingdoms of the earth will be under one king, Jesus. And in that day, the people of God will have multiplied and subdued the earth through faithful and fruitful labor such that God's glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So hear this, church, in Jesus' baptism, in his genealogy, and now in his temptation, he has begun to establish a new creation in which the tempter doesn't win. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and in his ascension, he provides for us a way to enter into this new creation through a second birth, through faith. We can be sons of God rather than sons of Adam. We can be strong against temptation rather than weak, taking on the work of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with God's glory. But for now, we still live in a world that is largely wilderness. 
and Satan knows our aim. So we will be tempted. We will be tempted to eat of the corruption of this world when we have cravings for meaning, satisfaction, pleasure, and glory. We will be tempted to turn the things of Satan's kingdom into food for our souls. But we have the same helper Jesus did in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and he will remind us to feast upon God's word and to hold fast to God's mission. The question is, will we listen? We will be tempted also to settle for the praise and admiration of men and women. We'll be tempted to be satisfied with riches and things and experiences. Because it's going to be easier to find our meaning in our work than to do the hard work of cultivating relationships and ministry. It'll be easier than being rejected by those around us. It will be quicker than building God's kingdom. It'll be quicker to build kingdoms for ourselves. But we must remember that we serve a good God. And His glory is what the world most needs covering it. So we continue to toil in the thorns and the thistles, knowing that our God and our Savior wears a crown of thorns and that His suffering is the sure pardon for us and that our labor is not in vain. We've been saved for this work of cultivation, church. And we will one day reap the full rewards of our labor. The question is, will we be faithful? We will be tempted to run away from the work of ministry when we consider the patience, the suffering, and the difficulty that will be required to turn our wilderness of a neighborhood into a garden of God's peace. Holiness will be very hard, church. Ministry will be very hard. Relationships are going to be difficult to build. For us, sometimes sanctification might seem so slow. And in those moments, we're going to be tempted to run. We'll be tempted to run to our former sins for comfort. Tempted to stop coming to Sunday gatherings in shame. Tempted to stop engaging with our neighborhood parish. We'll be tempted to stop praying and relying upon God's presence and His Spirit. We'll be tempted to pour ourselves into things less difficult. Tempted to stop reading God's word. But in those moments, we can remember that the kingdom of darkness has been defeated. That Satan put our Christ to the test and that Christ won in a landslide. So will we hold fast to our victorious king? Church, we're working from a victory already won. We're working full of the breath of God, more like Christ than like Adam, trusting in God's word. And so if we want to see God's glory established in our neighborhood, established in all the earth, we must remember that it happens through fruitful multiplication. Every time we see someone in our neighborhood turn to Christ in faith, a little bit more of the garden has been worked and tilled. Every time a neighborhood parish is multiplied, we see God's kingdom advancing, His peace being established. Every time we see a church planted, God's garden's borders extend. 
Every time we resist sin and trust God's will for us, every morning we spend in prayer delighting in His love for us and reading His word with anticipation and with joy, in those things we embrace the victory of our Savior. We embrace our new identity as children of a new creation. A creation in which God's goodness, love, grace, and power will certainly reign. Through Christ's work on our behalf, church, we have been given freedom from forbidden fruit and all of its curses. So let us feast upon heavenly food this morning. Let us feast upon Christ, the true word, the bread of life. Let us taste of the very thing that sustained him in the wilderness. It will surely satisfy and fill us too. Let's pray. Father, would you have all of your glory? And would you use us that it might extend? Would you establish in our neighborhood peace and righteousness and grace and freedom and brotherly love that are the markers of your garden? And would you push back the darkness of the wilderness? The power of the evil one. Would we be strong and wise against his temptations, relying upon your word, upon your spirit? Would we be a people who know your word that we might be protected against temptation, that we might have tools to fight it? Would we be known and understood in our neighborhood parishes, linking arms in the hard work of sweat and toil for the sake of your kingdom? But would you begin to establish your kingdom more and more in our neighborhood? Even this morning, would you turn hearts who are dead into hearts that are alive and beating as part of a new creation in which you reign and rule and in which your grace has no end. We praise you for the work of your Son. Repentant and obedient on our behalf, who has made a way that we could come to a table and feast upon grace. Would you change us and would you have all the glory that is due you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.